Father God, Lord, I just I thank you for today, and I just thank you for, Lord, I, I thank you for every single person, every life here, God, every every challenge being faced, God. I thank you that you're working in and through that, God, and I just pray that today that for those of us who are in challenges, God, that we would be encouraged, Lord, that we'd be equipped in a fresh way, maybe with a fresh perspective, Lord, to walk out and step out into into challenge into difficulty in in a new way god lord i pray that you would give us just a bigger picture of you in the midst father god of adversity lord give us hope and encouragement today in your name amen okay guys we're in acts 23 the title for today is up against it sometimes in life we're just we feel everything coming against us so we're going back into acts after last week if you missed it it was a howl of a time we've preached on halloween the real halloween and so we're coming back into our act series we've finished with acts 22 kind of and we're really going into acts 23 today and so you may remember from acts 22 paul addresses that mob long story short there's a lot of people who are out to get him he's mobbed pulled up onto the steps and kind of rescued by the romans there who put him in chains and from the steps he's given permission to address the mob and that's what we spoke about two weeks ago and that's he's brought back into the barracks and there's this whole scene with the commander there and paul and what we're now going to be looking at in Acts 23 is Paul really up against it because the commander really wants to know what's going on and so the next day he sends Paul off to the highest court for the Jews the Sanhedrin and that's pretty much where Acts 23 kicks off he learns as well through this time that there's 40 men who have committed to murder him so he's got kind of the high court appearance and then he also finds out that there's 40 guys who are out to murder him and he's not free just to kind of slink away in the night even if he could it's probably too dangerous you know sometimes in life we can feel like everything is up against us that the whole world's against us that we look at it it's just like man this situation looks completely hopeless it seems like we're trapped there's nowhere to turn and today what we're going to be looking at is a similar situation Paul's in in Acts 23 and look at how Paul responds to his situation. Look at the way he acts in that situation, the hope that he has and where the source of his courage to step out and just to live and hold it together comes from. And so we'll look at that and look at what lessons we can learn for ourselves. So let's get stuck into it. We're going to do the last verse of Acts 22. 30, which I missed off last week, through to 23, 5. It says this, The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. That's how he kicks it off. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth, punch him in the face. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewash wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's 
high priest. And Paul replied, brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest for it's written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Wow, this is our first kind of thought for the day. Look how they treat Paul. And the thing I think that's incredible is look how respectful Paul's response is when he's got all the facts. You know, just think about what's happening here, the bigger picture of what's going on. That Paul, he's gone up to Jerusalem, hasn't he? He's traveled all over the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, all these churches picking up a massive gift, a financial gift to bring back to the church in Jerusalem from the Gentile church. There's a riot because people think that Paul is uh, teaching the Jews to stop following the law of Moses, and which isn't true. And Paul gets rescued by the Romans pretty much arresting him. And then he's taken the next day before the Sanhedrin. This Sanhedrin, it is a big deal. Just as Paul kind of stands up and declares his innocence before them, a high priest gets somebody who's standing near him to smack him in the face, to punch his mouth so that he would stop speaking. Very unusual behavior, quite controversial in amongst that group of like not letting the accused give any kind of speech. Paul is super like indignant, right? His, his indignation right at the beginning is justified. And he stands there and he calls out this hypocrisy. However, I think the thing that's amazing is look how Paul responds when he discovers that the man, the way he's spoken to this guy, that that, that man is the high priest. He's so respectful. Why, you know, why is he so respectful? You know, is it because he's suddenly just had a change of heart? Is it because he's actually, sorry, actually, what you just did is okay? No, his whole perspective there changes because the Lord's commanded it. And that's what Paul says to them, doesn't he? He says, the Lord has commanded it. Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And he quotes that verse. Ironically, they're accusing him of not following the law. And yet Paul is in all things, even where he's being unjustly treated, walking in line with the law. That Paul honors God's word above his own grievance. Paul honors God's word above his own grievance. And here's the challenge, guys, that when we're up against it, when we're facing situations which are just tough, when we're facing tough times, more often than not, there's somebody who's involved in that situation. Fair enough, if you face a tsunami or something like that, that's a different kind of story. But for most situations, most challenging situations, there's somebody who's involved. There's someone that we can put the finger of blame upon. And there's the challenge. We're all gonna face times where there is these people who have clearly wronged us, where we have the opportunity to respond in the word of God or by the word of God or by our emotions, by the way culture says to respond. You know, was it okay for that high priest, morally, was it okay for him to not allow Paul to speak, to smack him in the face? No, it wasn't okay. And yet Paul responded in line with the word of God to that guy, to that situation. So when we're faced with all kinds of challenges, what will we do? What's Jesus say? He says, love your enemies, doesn't he? Love your enemies. Are we gonna love our enemies or not? Will we pour kindness out onto insult? 
or fight fire with fire. And so Paul is stretched and he's stressed. And I think this just, he's an amazing guy. And yet, you know, he's still in that moment honors God in the midst of it all. Do we let the word of God rule in our lives? We can say things like, yeah, yeah, we love Jesus, we love the Bible, and he's awesome. And that's fine until someone does something terrible. (laughs) You know, someone does something which you're just like, "Ah, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) And I know what it feels like. Sometimes when you're tired, it maybe is a little bit harder not to. I don't advise having babies if you get tired easily. You know, sometimes it's just the cultural response, the cultural response that, you know, if someone does that, so we do this. There's some cultures have uh, vendetta kind of models within the culture where actually, you know, an eye for an eye, you kill me, I kill you. Is our response to various situations in our lives led by him and his word as paramount or do we respond? with our emotions? Do we respond how we feel like in that moment? And that's really challenging. It's really challenging. When we're up against it, especially when it's the fault of somebody else, when it's the fault of another person, I want to challenge you guys and encourage us today that the first part of our victory over that circumstance is found within our response. It's found within our response. Is that something, guys, that you need to challenge yourself in today? Is there something that you're seeking victory in, but actually the way that you're responding to the person who's causing that isn't in line with the Word of God? So that's the first kind of concept or point that we pull out of this. Verses 6 to 10 then, it says this, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. You know, the Sadducees, they didn't have a hope in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. Tough crowd, guys. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that There are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. I mean, that's pretty crazy. That must have been a pretty crazy situation. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So the Sanhedrin time's done now, back in the barracks. I love this part. You know, Paul is so respectful, isn't he? He's so humble when he maybe realizes, actually, I was really rash in the way I spoke to this guy. Look, I'm coming under the word of God and I respect him, even though he doesn't really deserve to be respected, but I'm not respecting the guy based on his actions. I'm respecting it on the word of God. And suddenly in that moment, you know, Paul's so respectfully, so humble, but he's not timid. He's not timid. There's a great difference between humility and timidity. And he stands up and Paul speaks truth very wisely and he draws this whole group of people who were there 
into his part of the argument. The Pharisees, of which he's one of, right? Or he's, he's part of, he's, he's descended from. You know, it isn't unchristian to be clever. It's sometimes, I, I think, within Christian argument or something like that, it, sometimes some people think, okay, well, actually, maybe it's unchristian to be really wise in the way we discuss things that we've got to be so open and just put everything out there that somebody could just manipulate us or criticize us. And it's just not true that there is this thing of speaking in truth, walking in complete integrity, but in that thing of being as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. But Paul uses every kind of facet of his wisdom and his wits to communicate in a way that's authentic and truthful and draws people towards Christ, draws people towards the gospel. You know, he actually, what he does is he reframes the situation. Paul is actually there because the commander said go there, because the mob had rioted, because a whole load of people had believed some false stuff about Paul telling people in Gentile lands not to follow Moses. Whereas Paul reframes it and he says, actually, I'm here because of my belief in the resurrection. Paul's approach here, I think, can really help us thinking through how we communicate our faith to people. Look for those areas. I've said it before. Look for those areas of commonality and share those. Find that place where you and they can meet. You know, take people on a journey from where they're at. Find that point of mutual belief and start there take them on a journey. There's this guy who spoke at the Justice Conference. His name is Krish Kandaya from the UK. And he's written a book called Faithism. Faithism. It's kind of about people of faith, Christians, and also atheists. And part of the blurb, I'll just read you, it's this quote. It says, in Faithism, Krish Kandaya asks us to take a long, hard look at ourselves and a more understanding look at each other. When we step away from the arguments for a moment and consider the real people on each side of this debate, he argues we will discover that we share more than we realize. And I think there's something special in that, there's something beautiful in that, that you'd be amazed how many points of commonality we have with people who don't share our faith, who are coming from another faith background, or in this context, who are coming from an atheist background. If we can find that point of commonality and begin to talk and begin a dialogue, a journey of faith with them, you could begin to point people to the hope that you have in Christ. But if you sit down and say, no guys, like this is the way it is, you've got five minutes to believe, otherwise I'm moving on, it doesn't always work like that. Now, sometimes people come to faith that quickly, but it doesn't always work like that with everyone. I was thinking about it and it's like everyone's on a journey on the MTR to Central and some people they're an Admiralty and you just have to have one chat with them and it's like we're in Central we're there you know it's like it's a shoe in it's just like goes in you know someone who's come back come to Christ some people who are quite fong if I'm right, hopefully. They're on the red line. They're right round there. Now, they don't have to change trains. They've got no massive hurdles. They don't need to change through any stations. They just got to ride that train for a long time and just go through it. Them really coming to Christ, there's a lot of things they want to think through and go through. There's no real challenges. They just, they, they just go, go along the journey with you, but it just might take some time. And then you have other people. Those guys, they may be at Hang Hao. 
Okay, there's only one change they've got to do, but it's this massive hurdle they've got to get through because they, they don't believe they can be forgiven. They don't believe that God could have grace for them, that they've got to get through that huge hurdle of walking through the tunnels at North Point to say, okay, I'm through the tunnel. I, can, I accept your grace, Jesus. And then straight through to Central. You know, other folks, they're on the Maan Shan line and they're like, they're, they're a Wukai Shah. And it's like, wow, it's so, this is a nightmare. Okay, I might as well have taken a taxi. Of course, you could get people in a taxi, you know. Um, and so, you know, there's maybe some big hurdles. They've got to change at Dai Wai, they've got to change at Kowloon Tong, they've got to change at Mong Kok. And there's some massive jumps that they've got to get through, some big hurdles in their life, maybe personally, maybe theologically, that they've got to get to before they come to faith. But the thing is, if you were with somebody and you wanted to travel with them to Central and you said to them, like, I'll only come on that journey with you if you can do it in one stop. And it's like, I, I just can't, you know, the MTR can't, like, I, I can't do it. I can't get to Central in one stop, do it. And it's just like, I can't. And, you know, there are some things, same for explaining stuff as well. There's some stuff that you can't do in one step. And I think that for us, there's a beauty in actually challenging ourselves to walk with people in relationship and in love. But the starting point is that point of mutual commonality where we can begin this journey with them. Some people, they're at Sai Kung and there isn't even an MTR there and you've got to get them. <laughs> you've got to get them a long way, ram them on a bus. There's a lot of um, stuff that you, you need to walk with them through. But that's the challenge is would you walk with people in a journey and find that place of um, mutual agreement? Like think about those Pharisees there. How many of those guys who were maybe not accepted the gospel thought, oh, that's interesting and began and pursued this kind of journey of faith about what Paul is speaking about, about the resurrection, about these things that they've always believed. How many think started that journey of faith that day? And so being wise and actually thinking about how we chat about stuff and communicate as opposed to just being angry is so important. You know, so often it can seem like, you know, we've got to defend the gospel to like maybe someone who's attacking the gospel. The gospel can defend itself. It was here a long time before you were born and it will be here a long time after you go. And there are certain times and places where it's so right to defend the gospel, you know, like people have given their lives for the deep theological things like salvation by grace and things like that. But actually when you're chatting with someone, you don't have to have an argument over faith. And I think there's something very special in that. And there's a big thing, in the, there's a big thing, especially in the West, I find it quite a lot in the UK, which is if you disagree with somebody's opinion, it's like you're disagreeing with them and who they are, and there can be a lot of um, conflict. Whereas in actually before, um, maybe, a, maybe about 100 years ago, maybe less than that, it was completely fine to have two people who had completely different opinions and it wouldn't, it wouldn't impact how they would see each other. And there's something very important for us to grasp, which is, that somebody's opinion doesn't define them and their value. And actually for us to have the confidence to say, I, you know, actually I, I completely disagree with what, what you're saying, but you know, I love you. And, like, I'm pleased that you can have the freedom even to have that opinion, but I don't believe that, I, I believe this and have that ability just to not fight, but just communicate and talk. So guys, be wise in your dialogue when everything seems completely set against you. 
verses 11 to 22, says this. So it pulls back in the barracks. It says, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. Jesus says to him, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. They're laying in wait. There's an ambush. But when the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander and the centurion said Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you and the commander took the young man by the hand drew him aside and asked what is it you want to tell me and he said some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give him to them because 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They're ready now waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Wow, it's a great scene, an epic scene. Paul is really up against it, you know. It's kind of like, ah, oh, that didn't go so well in the Sanhedrin, did it? I was almost ripped apart. And then now he gets this when he's back. There's 40 people, not just wanting to kill him, but committed, so committed, like zealously committed to ending his life. So these guys who made this commitment made this vow in verse 14. But they didn't know that in verse 11, another vow had been made, another word had been spoken. And you guys need to know this, that if Jesus speaks something to you, if he calls you to something, it will come about. And so what is it that Jesus says back in verse 11? He says to Paul, have courage, you will testify about me in Rome. And the next thing Paul learns is 40 guys are trying to kill him. You know, God is so faithful, so faithful. Remember we spoke a few weeks back about Paul on the way up to Jerusalem. He kept getting all these prophecies about how he was going to be put in chains. And we said, you know, at the time people were trying to stop him, don't go up to Jerusalem, don't go up to Jerusalem. But actually, what amazing hope that was when he was in the midst of that mob and they'd shut the temple doors, they were intent on killing him in that mob. What hope and peace that must have been for Paul that he knew that he was going to be bound in chains and not killed by a mob. And now, in a similar kind of way, he gets told, you're going to Rome. And then the next thing he learns, there's these 40 guys trying to kill him. It's awesome. God says, take courage, you're going to testify about me. And we get this whole load of coincidental happenings with uh, Paul's nephew and, and things like that. And because of that, the plot comes known to Paul, plot comes known to the centurion, or the, uh, the commander rather, and Paul is saved. To know that 40 people are trying to murder you, that's pretty bad, isn't it? It's quite a bad day, but it's quite stressful. But I, I don't think that Paul is stressed because Jesus has already told him 
of the future he's walking into. That no matter there's these 40 guys committed to his death, Jesus says, you will testify about me in Rome. John Piper's got this great quote speaking about this chapter. And he says this, he says, you too have a final testimony to give, like Paul's in Rome. You too have a final testimony to give and you are immortal until you give it. Think on that. You know, that when Jesus speaks a future over you and you walk in that, you walk in that way, you're bulletproof. But walking out, you know, and following the call of God can be a challenge, can't it? It can be difficult, you know, from maybe smaller personal things like sharing our faith right through to stepping out and making those big decisions, those decisions that maybe impact us in different ways, financially, maybe could impact us just in, we just don't know what's gonna happen. It could be scary. But what is it that Jesus tells Paul? He says to him, take courage. Take courage, verse 11, he says, that's how he starts that verse, he says, take courage. That statement when Jesus says take courage is the bedrock. It's the, it's the bedrock of our standing. It's the bedrock of continuing to stand when all seems set against you. When everything seems set against you, that statement has to be for Paul, but also for us, the bedrock that we stand on. You know, what is Jesus calling Paul to take courage in? It's not abstract. He's calling him to take courage in him, in Jesus, in his word. It is not this abstract concept of just being like, oh, don't worry about it, you know? It's courage for the situation that he, Jesus, is the sovereign God. That he's calling Paul within that to trust him, to take courage in the sovereignty of God, in the kingship of Jesus, that he is king of kings, that he is Lord of lords. And no matter if 40 guys say, I'm going to kill you, if Jesus says, you will testify about me in Rome, that nothing can stand in his way. That He's the God of the universe and that he's on your side and that his word will come to pass. You know, a little story about when we were, um, some of you guys know this because it's quite recent, back in August when the church was running out of money and we're coming down, it's just like, oh, okay, well, and Jess and I were looking and thinking, we're not sure how we're going to be able to kind of make ends meet. And I remember kind of sharing at the time just about, you know, if we believe that he's the king, if we believe that he, he is king of kings and lord of lords, that he is the provider, then it, may, it doesn't make any sense just logically for me to be concerned that the provision, however it may come, may not be there. Because it would almost be like me working for a monarch, right? Queen of England or something, and freaking out every month that maybe she won't pay me or something like that. Maybe she doesn't have the, the money. He's the king, isn't he? And amazingly, right exactly when it was needed, provision came. And so that's what I'm also doing. I'm not being paid by church at the moment. I'm being paid from a, a, a marketing contractor that I'm doing on the side as well. Amazing provision from God. But pray one day, you know, numbers grow and we have more and more stuff. And it's not just me, but we have loads, loads of other stuff. You guys can all come and join. It'd be great. <laughs> you know, that 11th hour thinking 
I just want to challenge us in that as a little aside that, you know, I always find it hard because God kind of, it's always come through for me, but he always comes through right and like right on the line. And I just want to like challenge us in that because it's not right on the line. It's exactly when we need it. You know, those (laughs) that he's in that place, not too soon or too late. His timing is perfect. The, the thing is, we just need to live in that complete assurance and complete trust that he's going to catch us, that even though we're falling today, that he's coming to catch us. So when we feel up against it and everything looks like it's going to fall apart, where do we put our hope? Where do we find and derive and find the foundations of our courage for that situation. When it looks like everything is against us, where do we stand? Is it from our ability? Is it from our bank balance and our money? Is it from our experience? Like, okay, we've seen this in the past happen. I, I know how to deal with this. Is it from other people? I'm just gonna trust in this person to sort things out, to hold me up. Or is it actually my courage comes because of him, because of Jesus, that he is the sovereign God and he's declared this over me. And sometimes it's a Rima kind of word, a bit like happened to Paul there, right? So it's a word that he's having spoken over to him in the moment. Sometimes it's actually just a promise from the Bible that God speaks over us. Where do we find our courage? You know, that's the challenge for today, guys. I think that's probably the core challenge. When we are up against it, when everything looks just so bleak, is the sovereignty of God, the rule of Jesus, his kingship, is that bigger than your problem? Or is the problem the mountain? Is it bigger than the enemy standing against you? I'm not talking about belittling a situation. I'm not talking about saying like, no, no, that thing doesn't exist or like, you know, the super spiritualing away this thing, like this thing hasn't happened, it's not real. No, it's real, but there is one who's even more real. There's one who's even greater than your situation. So are you in a situation today where you need to take courage in him? Where you need to take courage in his ability to lead you through the challenge set before you. Think on that, think on that. So we're just gonna go in this last part. Verse 23 to 35, it says, then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Wow, that's 400 men and 70 horsemen. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, this is the commander, remember from last week, the guy, who, this is his, the Roman name he would have been given because this guy bought his, his citizenship. To his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, speaking of Paul, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their Sanhedrin and I found out that their accusation had to do with questions about their law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. I think that's significant in this stage. Deserved death or imprisonment. 
When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. And the next day they let the cavalry go on with them while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. This is a cool little end situation that when we're up against it, God can come through in the most extravagant and unlikely ways. See, this section is really about Paul moving from Jerusalem down to Caesarea, which is the, uh, the coastal town, the port city. It's the administrative capital. It's where the main Roman force in Israel at the time is based. And it's where the biggest authority in the whole land is based, Governor Felix. He's there. And it's under his protection that Paul is being held. Think about that. Think about this situation. You know, Paul gets given this military escort with soldiers and cavalry. There's a lot of honor about, over Paul within this story, that the messenger of God is treated in such a way. You know, God's favor will come to us through all sorts of avenues and means and all sorts of ways. You know, there's a natural, the kind of natural way through here. It's the cultural thing of Paul's time. He's a Roman citizen. And so they look after him. But, you know, they could have sent just him with a few men. They didn't need to set. They could have sent 50 men. They didn't need to go to the extravagance that we see in that. But think of what's happening here. Okay. in today's standards, what, how Paul's being treated. <clears throat> it's like Paul's being escorted out of town by a small army you know, and a whole load of tanks. There's 400 men and, and 70 horses. Whereas in today's standards, you know, a load of foot soldiers, a load of infantry and all these tanks escorting him out of town. Amazing. When you're up against it, God can orchestrate things to bless us, he can orchestrate situations so they seem almost ridiculous that they're just like this is crazy I remember different situation but I remember Andrew Owen something had happened and he was going to catch a flight and he gets to the airport and there was a whole load of stuff had happened so basically they were they were shutting they shut the doors and he stands there and he's like man they've shut the doors and he waits and she says sorry sir you can't come in and he says no, the, the, plane, the plane's coming back for me, because actually the plane had just left. He said, the plane's coming back for me. And he just stood on this promise that I'm a child of God. I need to get on that plane. That plane's coming back for me. And they kept coming up to him in the waiting room saying, the plane is it's going to leave. It's taxing down. It's in the queue waiting. And he said, it's okay. I'm just waiting because it's coming back. And then eventually the lady comes back over and she says, there's been some incident on the plane. The plane's coming back so you'll be able to board in a minute. Amazing. There's so many stories and things like that, you know, that God can do the ridiculous. And so he goes, this is Paul, he goes from having 40 people making a vow to murder him to having this military escort escort him out of town. And then look where they put him to stay. They're there to keep Paul safe. They're there to guard him 
in Herod's palace and they put him in a palace. You know, the letter down to Felix says, I don't see that he's not a prisoner. He's not worthy of imprisonment and he's not worthy of death. That actually their heart towards him isn't one of, this guy's done something wrong, we're imprisoning him. They're keeping him safe. Paul, as we know, he's slept rough and had all kinds of wild, like wild times up in the mountains, traveling through dangerous areas. This moment where he's in the palace, you know, he's probably having some good food. This probably, as weird as it kind of sounds from our maybe used to reading this part, it's actually probably an amazing blessing for him. It's like he's under the protection of the governor. He's in the main building. He's in the palace there in the town. It's like being protected by the Secret Service in the White House or something like that. It's a serious deal. And, you know, some of you guys who are maybe in the really tough times need to, need to hear that. That, of course, it doesn't always work out like that. That we can walk in honor and blessing despite what our circumstances may look like in the day. The enemy may try and tear you down and when it looks the bleakest, when it looks the complete lowest point, when you think, ah, oh, man, I, I can't see a way through this, God, in a matter of moments, can turn everything around and you find yourself living in the palace, living in a place of total protection and total, total rest. So for some of you guys today, maybe you need to hear that, that Christ is your victory, not just for eternity, but for life itself here. And there's a beautiful reflection of this grand story of the gospel in this part where Paul's taken down. It speaks of our citizenship in heaven. See, Paul's facing certain death, no way out of it. Like if he just walks out on the street to go and pick up some hummus, like he's done, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not that, no, it would be. Yeah, yeah, it would be. That's amazing. I should have slipped that in, homicide. Yeah. You know, Paul is facing certain death, and yet he's saved. Why is it that he's saved? Why is he saved? How is he saved? Sure, God is working at things, but on a very earthly level, how is he saved? His citizenship saves him, doesn't it? His citizenship. See, he didn't pay anyone. He wasn't saved based on his character. He wasn't saved on anything like that, on how many cool stuff he'd done or how much he'd given to the Romans or anything like that. He was saved only because he was a Roman citizen, a state he was in since birth. That he, he just was born into that. Paul was born into his citizenship of Rome. And just like each one of us, he was born again into a citizenship of the kingdom. See, in the same way that he didn't have to earn his Roman citizenship because he was born into it, he was this baby, completely dependent. Couldn't earn anything, right? And yet he's given the greatest citizen, like to do with earthly kingdom, citizenship privilege that anyone could have. It's the same for us and Paul, but spiritually speaking, that Jesus did everything for us. He made the way, that he's the way, the truth, the life. He's the way. He made the way so that, that we could, by faith, not works, not by buying a citizenship like the guy Claudius does. There's nothing we can do to ever earn that. So that by faith, we could be born again into a citizenship of the kingdom. 
And I think that is this incredible citizenship with amazing rights and privileges. It's an incredible citizenship with amazing rights and privileges for eternal life and life here on the earth. See, if Roman citizenship, if you think about this, if Roman citizenship had such protection, such privilege, all that kind of stuff, imagine everything that those guys had. Paul getting escorted out in this massive military escort. Imagine the protection and privilege we are under in him and are sitting under today. Maybe you're here today and you want that citizenship and you're saying, actually, I don't have that. If you do, the only way to get that is through Christ. And sometimes as believers, we sit there and think, actually, I've not really thought about that. I've not really thought about it, but there is something within our citizenship and understanding our citizenship in the kingdom where actually in faith, we lay claim to the promises of God in that. You know, if you think of Paul, had he not said, when they were gonna beat him, flog him in Acts 22, had he not said, I'm a Roman citizen, everything else wouldn't have panned out the way it did. We need to realize the privilege of our citizenship. So act on our citizenship. So no matter what you're up against, no matter what your earthly citizenship is, where, whichever country you're part of, if you're in Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. And have hope in that. Have hope in that, that God works all things for your good. And so Paul's saved, right? He's saved. And he goes from really being in this place, completely up against it, up against it, against the Sanhedrin, and then even more so, where these guys are looking to kill him. And throughout, he stays focused on the call of his life. He didn't look to save his life. He just spoke the truth, didn't he? He was gracious and respectful when he came before the Sanhedrin. He showed them love. He was wise, and yet he spoke the truth of the gospel, trusting that the God who spoke to him and said that he would testify in Rome would make it so, would see it come to be. Are you here today and you know that when you're faced with a challenge, when people challenge you, just all respect for them, you know, just kind of... goes out the window and really you respond in the heat of the moment rather than by the word of God. Are you in that place maybe right now where you're facing something that's a challenge and you need to bring your heart, your response under control? Do you need maybe right now just between you and God to repent and pray for the fruit of the spirit, the one being, you know, long-suffering, patience, forbearance. There's a, usually quite often because it's to do with people, it can often be people that we know all too well and we're very close with too. Long-suffering, that fruit of the spirit, that, that bearing with people in love is a really amazing aspect of this renewed life in God where we step out, where we walk out this life in the spirit and people see where there's just peace that flows from us. 
Do you have a courage and confidence in the sovereignty of God over your challenge? Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're facing something and you're just struggling to trust God to come through for you. That yeah, he could do it for someone else, but he couldn't do it for you. But guys, you've got to know that he died for you. He died for the world, but he died for you. He stands as your strong right arm against the challenge. If you're facing something today, I just want, want you guys just to meditate on um, how that looks. When we just make him the one and his kingship over everything, the thing that we base our courage for the situation in. In him, in who he is, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you need to trust God for your victory today?